You are listening to the protagonist of the erotic. Produced by Extra Extra. Each episode is dedicated as an act of love to the libidinal ouvre of a living person. Desired object or location that can be visited in the present day. We discover what it means to define and shape sensuality, framed within the dynamic context of modern urban life. Roasted with a splash of olive oil, a twist of garlic or dash of hot chilli, aubergines are sensuously salivating. The vegetables are immediately recognisable by their iconic phallic or bulbous breast-like shape, coated in a layer of waxy deep purple skin and tender white flesh, spongy to the touch. Narrating her own culinary heritage and nostalgic memories of plates of steaming curry, baba ganoush and succulent vegetarian schnitzel, Nat Muller lovingly traces the erotic connotations of the plants, encompassing the kitchen sink poetry of Erica John, an innuendo-laden exchange of emojis and the invigorating history of aubergine aphrodisiacs. Nat serves up a ravenously raunchy tale of the eggplant or brinjal from an inaugural romantic dinner gone wrong to her husband's sure-handed slicing. She uncovers aubergines as a love language, one that speaks across continents and generations. And now, onto our aubergine dip. Look at that. Just going to split that open. And reveal that juicy flesh inside. Absolutely lovely. The whole shape of the aubergine is um, sort of a luxurious, meaty. See how beautiful and golden they all turn. Now for the beef and aubergine, which starts off with olive oil. generous amount. And I want to cook this patiently and gently so that it's soft and golden. I'm going to turn the heat up. It is 1999 and I'm cooking for my lover. 
This is the first time I have ever cooked for a romantic interest. The dish in question is an aubergine curry. I am feverishly nervous and wantonly excited. My small kitchen looks like a libidinous battlefield of open jars, sizzling pans and whirring appliances. Fueled by passion and culinary hubris, I hope the charred aubergine's slippery and velvety mouthfeel conveys the sophistication of my palate, as well as that of my desire. I season the dish with delicate spices, vibrant ginger, pungent garlic, and juicy tomatoes. The 10th century Arab poet and foodie, Kushajan, likened the flavor of aubergine also commonly known as eggplant or brinjal, to the exchange of lovers kissing. Perhaps subconsciously, I want to emulate that sensibility and entangle the pleasure of aubergine with that of sex. The recipe requires I oven roast aubergine whole, scoop out its mushy pulp, and then mix it with the other ingredients. At the time, a kitchen ingenue, I had not pierced the aubergine before roasting them. When the time comes to check on the vegetables and take them out of the oven, I hear a fizzle, then a pop, and before I know it, the oven and kitchen floor are covered in burst vegetable. Splatters of fiery hot aubergine lacerate my forehead and cheek, strips of its auburn flesh singeing mine. I could feel the tingle of this unhappy communion for days, and my skin was abraded for weeks. It turned into a kind of Hawthornian scarlet letter, burned into my skin, reminding me of being ravenous, both on the gastronomical and amorous front. If you are what you eat, as the adage goes, then what did this dish of exploding aubergine mean? Inside, I believe my choice of food was far more complex than I may have admitted at the time. To put it in food scholar Harry Kashtan's words, what you eat affects what you are becoming. You eat what you want to be. Who did I want to be in this romantic relationship? At the time, in my early 20s, I was looking for a sense of home after years of studying abroad. I wanted to be taken seriously as an adult and as a paramour. I wished for the restlessness that consumed me and continues to eat me till this day to subside by being lost in someone else. What should I eat to find a sense of self? What should I feed others to acknowledge this hankering? It is no coincidence I turn to aubergine, as I suppose my mother, a Mediterranean Jew, did when she was looking for a sense of home and belonging. Aubergines were not widely available in the Belgium of my childhood in the 1970s. Only at the Marché du Midi, the Sunday morning market, close to Brussels' Midi train station, vendors from North Africa and the Mediterranean would sell the priced vegetable. 
Once we moved to a remote village in the Flemish countryside, it would take years till aubergines would become available at supermarkets. And once they did, my mother would return to the dishes of her childhood and instill in us an intergenerational connection with memory and place, which remained abstract and largely unspoken, but was served to us on the plate. A favorite treat was an aubergine schnitzel, or katsu, depending on your culinary reference, in which the vegetable would be sliced lengthwise in thin slices, dredged in flour, egg, breadcrumbs, and then fried. The crunch of the crispy coating formed the ultimate foil to the silky texture of the aubergine. A squeeze of lemon added tang. Another staple would be a cold dish of aubergine cut into thick rounds, fried in olive oil, then garnished with pressed raw garlic and parsley, doused in lemon juice. Here, the crackly bite of the fried skin would gorgeously contrast with the succulent and oily fleshy inside. As a child, I would scrape the garlic and the parsley off, finding the former too sharp, the latter too coarse. In fact, I still get rid of the garlic. This was before flat-leaf parsley was sold in Belgian supermarkets. My mother had to resort to the tough, straggly and curly stuff, which was all looks and no flavor. But I guess this is what migrants do, find substitutes in a new world, however imperfect, for an old world they left behind. In our family, this always happened through food. Food was the vehicle that did the difficult work of remembering finding solace in a place that would never really be home, and lifting the past into the present. Food shaped a sense of identity across linguistic and cultural barriers. For my Indonesian-Dutch father, this would be sambal, lots of it. Nasi goreng, serundeng, ikan teri, sayur lode, and gado-gado. For my mother, tahini, hummus, avocados, chopped vegetable salad, ripe, deep red sun-kissed tomatoes, and of course, aubergine. The synesthetic experience of preparing and ingesting food, a heady mix of touch, smell, texture and taste, is emotional on so many different levels. Who can resist a glut of taut-skinned, shiny, deep purple aubergines? It stimulates our haptic memory, plays with affect, and our senses. Apart from being mouth-watering delicious, they are just a beautiful thing to feast one's eyes on. Food can ground us when we feel out of place and offer an almost primal sense of homecoming. But home, for the aubergine, is a messy place. Technically a berry and thus a fruit, it is not indigenous to Europe. Its origins to this day remain contested, 
proving that even plant identity is a muddled affair. It is thought to have been first cultivated in the Indian subcontinent or China more than 2,000 years ago. Then it traveled via Persia and the Arabian Peninsula to Spain with the Arab conquest of the Iberian Peninsula in the 8th century. Associated with Moorish and Jewish cuisine, it took centuries for Christian Europeans to cast away their suspicion of this strange-looking fruit. Like tomatoes, peppers and potatoes, aubergine belongs to the nightshade family and was considered toxic, magical, and in some cases, with particularly black specimens, malicious. In the Middle Ages, it was thought to cause female infertility, insomnia, leprosy, epilepsy, melancholia, and an excess of black bile, amongst many other ailments. However, all of these could be countered by salting, rinsing, and cooking it. When treated correctly, medicinal qualities were ascribed to it, like helping digestion, reducing acidity and gas. In fact, its name, another point of contention among scholars, allegedly derives from the Sanskrit vatingana, which means flatulence-reducing. Not very sexy, I know. But hot-bloodedness was deemed another, perhaps more positive, side effect. Vatingana became Badimjan in Persian, Albetinjan in Arabic, Berenjena in Spanish, and Aubergine in French. In English, it was called eggplant before settling on the French aubergine. Inhabitants of medieval Britain would not have encountered the globose dark purple vegetable first but rather its round opaline cousin that has the size and shape of a goose egg. I am personally more partial to the folkloric Arabic explanation, namely that Betinjan comes from Bay Jin, or the demons, the jinns, eggs, Bayd. Though mistrust of the aubergine was aplenty, it was also believed to hold aphrodisiac properties. And what better proof than a vegetable named after an evil spirit's neither regions to confirm its salacity. Claudia Rodin, the doyen of Mediterranean and Middle Eastern cookery, characterizes the popular Levantine dip, babaranouche, in which smoky aubergine is blended with tahini, lemon and garlic and means pampered daddy, as exciting and vulgarly seductive. 
the famous Turkish dish of fried aubergine baked in a rich tomato sauce, Imam Bayaldi, translates as the Imam fainted. The story goes that it was so delicious that it made a man of God swoon with pleasure. The aubergine seems to inspire lust, awe, as well as no small degree of trepidation. Throughout its checkered history, there is a bit of danger associated with this vegetable. The Indonesian puppet shadow play Wayang Kulit features a character known as Buto Terong, the aubergine giant, a fierce pot-bellied ogre eating everything in its wake with a nose shaped like Terong, aubergine. I sympathize with this ravenous giant's hunger and wonder whether his veracity could be attributed to the dark power of the aubergine. aubergine inspire appetites other than comestible? I am sure it does. Indeed, the Italian name for aubergine is melanzana, and in Greek, melizana. Both come from the Latin mala insana, or crazy apple, referring to the narcotic or hypnotic properties of the plant. Aubergine, then, can drive you insane with lunacy, gluttony, or carnal desire, so it seems. Perhaps for this reason, and well into the 16th century, the aubergine plant was considered primarily ornamental, a dangerous fruit and one to behold from afar and enjoy its pleasing hues of violet, mauve, and purple aesthetically, but certainly not to be consumed. Remember, you become what you eat. In Renaissance tableaus and folios, the aubergine plant is depicted as a lush shrub carrying heavy and alluring fruit. It often forms the backdrop for a lover's escapade or an intimate, perhaps illicit, rendezvous, again reinforcing the aubergine's aphrodisiac properties. 
While aubergine emojis nowadays refer to the more phallic, oblong Japanese kind, in the 15th and 16th century art, the vegetable seems to express a more omni-erotic quality, voluptuously plump and bulbous, more like breasts. The American poet and novelist Erica Jong, well known for her writing on affirmative female sexuality and her influence on second-wave feminism, knows this. Her poem, The Eggplant Epithalamion, was published in 1971 in her first book of poetry, Fruits and Vegetables. The collection is an erotic and gastronomic meditation on women's everyday lives, in these poems, mundane fruit and veg are transformed into something a little more steamy and spicy. In the eggplant Epithalamion, she describes the enticing and sensual tension between desire, vulnerability and love. It goes, I think of the hundreds of poems of the eggplant and my friends who have fallen in love over an eggplant who have opened the eggplant together and swum in its seeds, who have clung in the egg of the eggplant and have rocked to sleep in love's dark purple boat. The lovers in Jong's poem have found a home. The poem speaks of a snug, intimate togetherness that offers a safe space for the lovers to sleep. Well, you know, my book of poems has a very odd title for many people, Fruits and Vegetables, and the way it got this very odd title is because I began to write a series of poems, one of them the title poem, Fruits and Vegetables, um, which dealt with the mundane, ordinary objects that surround a housewife's life. And the rationale behind it, the feeling behind it, was that women really do have an experience in life that's different from that of men, and perhaps the best way to convey it is to write about those ordinary objects which surround their lives, the external objects which become, in a sense, internal objects, too, because they start defining the person's existence. So I wrote this long, serio-comic meditation on different fruits and vegetables. I think that is creative and productive, and my feeling is that um, the, the objects which we surround ourselves with do become part of us, and I think that it's a poet's role to show that an onion or a lipstick is not an incidental thing. It's a beautiful thing, and it's, a, it's an artful thing. It's a poet's job, really, to take the, the mundane, lowly thing and show readers the world within it. But my feeling is that it's a great emancipation for a woman writer to be able to write about her own subject matter, to be able to be a woman, not a surrogate man. You see, this, is, this I think, is very liberated in the book. It's not, uh, it's not really accepting uh, an inferior role. It's like blacks wanting the right to write about being black, not having to write pseudo-white novels. And this is the same thing that I'm trying to do in my book. I'm trying to assert the right of women to write about subject matter which is feminine without being put down for it. The teacher. The teacher stands before the class. She's talking of Chaucer, but the students aren't hungry for Chaucer. They want to devour her. They are eating her knees, her toes, her breasts, her eyes, and spitting out her words. What do they want with words? They want a real lesson. She is naked before them. Psalms are written on her thighs. When she walks, sonnets divide into octaves and sestets. 
Couplets fall into place when her fingers nervously toy with the chalk. But the words don't clothe her. No amount of poetry can save her now. There's no volume big enough to hide in, no unabridged Webster, no OED. The students aren't dumb. They want a lesson. Once they might have taken life by the scruff of its neck in a neat couplet, but now they need blood. They have left Chaucer alone and have eaten the teacher. She's gone now. Nothing remains but a page of print. She's past our helping. Perhaps she's part of her students. Don't ask how. Eat this poem. As the political biography of the aubergine attests, yes, vegetables have a political past too, the vegetable has not always signified harmonious coexistence. During the time of the Spanish Inquisition in the 15th century, aubergine animosity was at its height. It was seen as the Jewish apple and associated primarily with Jewish Sephardic cuisine and with the eating habits of conversos, Jews who under fear of expulsion, or worse, had converted to Christianity in the Spain and Portugal of the 14th and 15th century. Aubergine was often treated with contempt and denounced as a Semitic food, Jewish or Muslim, that a true Christian would not eat. The glaring absence of aubergine recipes in cookbooks of that era reflect this. It is painful to think how whole culinary traditions and centuries-old food customs were on the brink of being erased because of religious dogma and militancy. But blood and bellies are thicker than water. Conversos continued to eat the food of their Jewish forebears, often in secret and often at great personal risk. Food historian Hélène Jauhara Pinier cites the case of Catalina de Teva, a conversa who had to face the Inquisition Tribunal in April 1483 for making casseroles of stuffed aubergines for the Sabbath, which she and her friends ate cold on Saturdays. Imagine being put on trial because of a vegetable. When Spain and Portugal expelled their Jews in 1492, many fled to port cities like Amsterdam, Antwerp or Hamburg and to Italy, Greece and the rest of the Mediterranean. In their haste and because of restrictions, they could take little of their possessions with them. Such is the plight of those fleeing persecution. But they did take their food culture with them. In Italy, many dishes cooked with oil instead of butter or lard and eaten cold are alla Giuda or alla Ebraica, that is, in Jewish style, because these preparations adhered to kosher dietary restrictions of not mixing dairy with meat and not cooking on the Sabbath. Eventually, it was the expulsed Jews of Spain and Portugal who taught the Italians how to eat aubergine. The point I want to make is this. Food is never just food. 
Food is memory. Food is history. Food is culture. Food is politics. Food is love. And in the case of the aubergine, a hard-fought type of love that speaks in many tongues, some twisted, some hesitant, some ferocious. So when I eat my mom's signature aubergine dishes, it rekindles not only a taste of my childhood, the occasional tough love that was typical of her style of parenting, but also how and from where these recipes traveled, sometimes with difficulty, loss and heartbreak before they end up on my plate. Tonight, there is a sumptuous smell of luscious, creamy grilled aubergine wafting through the kitchen. My husband, Ferry, cooks all the aubergine dishes in our household. It is not something we ever discussed or agreed on. It just happened that way, as things in a relationship tend to do. He treats aubergine, like his risottos, with far more patience and a much gentler hand than I ever could. Cooking aubergine for your loved one, I believe, must be the ultimate gesture of affection. An invitation to tease our palates into the soothing, suggestive realm of what Zhang calls love's dark purple boat. Thank you for joining Extra Extra on this listening experience. It's been a pleasure to have welcomed you on a journey through this episode of The Protagonist of the Erotic. Please visit us at extraextramagazine.com where you can hear more about our auditory program and discover further editorial content exploring the intertwinement of sensuality and the city.